0: By doing so, you will be supporting meaningful Jewish educational content, funding the next generation of leaders, as well as furthering Jewish wisdom to people all over the country and all over the world. Please visit www.valleybetmadrash.org. Thank you so much and enjoy the program.
1: Thank you. Thank you all so much for coming, for inviting me out of freezing New York into lovely, sunny Arizona. Um, this is my first time here outside of the airport, so this is very exciting to actually see it. And I'm thrilled to be here discussing one of my favorite topics, um, Judaism, technology, and the intersection. So let me, let me start with a question. Um, quick show of hands, have you ever looked up something Jewish on the internet, had a question about Judaism, something to do with Torah and decided, oh, let me see what the internet has to say.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yep, I should, I should add my hand to this. Um, absolutely no pressure, but does anyone want to share Like, what kind of questions those were?
3: A lot of times when it's like, uh, like, how do you do a certain tradition or something, that comes up, and I feel like I see the Chabad website come up more than most.
1: Yeah, the Chabad website is a great and very common resource for this is how to do things. Um, anyone else want to share?
2: <laughs>
1: and once everyone clicks on you the first couple of times, Google keeps putting you on top because it's clearly an easy answer. So Chabad slowly gets everywhere, which is an important way for um, people to learn what what they have to say. What else? Anyone else want to share what they, what they look for?
0: Well, yesterday I was looking for a- for a source from a class I had taken earlier in the day.
1: Right, looking for for sources. That's that's a big one for me too. Um, I often find myself remembering three or four words from a source, but not remembering where it was, what context it was in. And so obviously I turn to the internet to seek answers for how to find this information or for where this verse actually appears. Anyone else want to share? Uh,
2: this week's Parsha. Every week's Parsha.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
2: Every week. Every week's,
1: Every week's Parsha. What's this week's Parsha? Um, yeah, I,
2: look at, I, I do commentary. Nice. So I just keep looking around the web, looking for other people's ideas on what the meaning was or what what sentence that they drill into Yes. Yeah. everybody has their own.
1: Yeah, that's, that's amazing. I, I love how there's so much information in terms of the weekly Parsha that you can find online. There's, as you were saying, there's just so many different approaches that you find. And you can find the ones that resonate with you, find the ones that don't, you start, and you can start to build up sort of a collection. So it sounds like there's sort of both sides of that. There's both finding out what it is and also learning about it. Google actually becomes a way for people to learn more Torah which is pretty amazing. Um, I was thinking as I was coming here, what I've Googled recently in terms of just things I had to look up. And it's a wide range. It's from, like I was saying before, I remember half of this text. What's the rest of it? Sometimes it's I, um, I definitely remember learning this law, but I cannot remember what it is. So maybe I'll Google it, and then I'll use that to find the sources in my notes when I have more language. The worst one was I had to Google how to spell my daughter's name in Hebrew because it's a significant debate. Her name is Ayelet, and it's unclear whether you spell it with one or two yuds. And we sort of, when she was born, we said we'd get back to that later, and we never actually got back to it. We're like, oh, (laughs) we should figure this out. So I had to Google which was the more common spelling of my daughter's name. And go with the other one. And go with the other one. (laughs) Fortunately, there's only one way to spell it in English, and that we decided for her birth certificate. But there's, there are a lot of questions that end up getting asked. Um, when you Google, when you Googled something, when you found it, how did you? And this is a slightly strange question. How did you feel about the answer? Did you trust it? Did it feel right? Was it? Did it feel like a fraught question, or did it feel like an easy question?
2: Uh, I only, well, it depends on the source. (laughs) So I look at, so if I find something, if I'm doing just a general Google search Mm -hmm. and I find 20 different pages with what I'm looking for, sometimes you have to go through and say, okay, so who is the author? What is this website? because I find an awful lot of stuff on messianic pages. That you get like halfway through and then you're going, whoa, wait a minute. Wait a minute.
1: <laughs> That's, not, That's mine. not mine. Yeah.
2: And then you go, okay, oh, and then a lot of them don't say. Yeah. There's just some professor somewhere writing stuff, and it's until you get into what they're writing, you don't really realize.
1: Yeah. Biblical overlap is sometimes a real problem. Like you were saying, you read something, it seems great, and then you realize it's written from a Christian perspective. And there doesn't seem to be a way to tell Google, only show me Jewish results. Um, I have this problem sometimes with Spotify as well, where I'm listening to music. And it thinks, oh, you heard Leonard Cohen's Hallelujah. Would you like Christian gospel music? And I find myself yelling, no. First of all, Cohen would hate that. And second of all, I really don't. So it's, it tries to give us what we ask for. But also, it's not always very good at understanding where we come from in our frameworks. Anyone else sort of want to respond to the question, how how did, how did you feel based on the results of your, of your search? Well, what are, what are your
2: top go-to places?
1: It, it depends what I'm looking for. So my top go-to places for Jewish texts, just the actual texts themselves, safaria.org um, is a big one for me because they consistently have a lot of Jewish content. Um, I spend a lot of time on um, the other VBM as well, the virtual Beit Midrash of Yeshivat Har Etzion, which is a um, men's yeshiva in Israel in the Gush. And they have a lot of really sort of thoughtful essays on a number of different topics. So I end up there both when I'm looking for interesting things on the Parsha and also interesting, and also when I can't remember something that I learned f- when I was studying to become a rabbi and I need to look up a really thoughtful but concise description of it. Um, the other one that I use a lot is called Al HaTorah, which is a website that is a little more specific than Safaria. It has fewer texts. But it has, especially for Torah, a lot of thoughtful, essays and context around it. So last year they had um, a lot of interesting pictures from sort of Jewish and Christian art of Joseph's reunion with his brothers, which I was looking at when it was that time in Torah reading to see how it was portrayed. So they would use that to help people, here's the text, here's how it's visually displayed, how do you, What do you make of these depictions and how are they different? So those are like my big three um, sources. But I also sometimes just type something into Google and see what turns up and check it out. Because it is sometimes kind of fraught. It's hard to know that you're asking the right question. It's hard sometimes also to know that you're getting the right answer. Um, Especially for questions sort of Chabad.org came up and they're really good at explaining their perspective on things. But if you're trying to find a slightly different perspective, it can sometimes be hard because just Google doesn't know that you're looking for, maybe you're looking for a Sephardi perspective, and they're giving you the Hasidic perspective. And that's great, but that's not really what you're looking for. They
2: They don't, because the authors don't specify, it's very difficult for Google to know whether you're looking for an orthodox conservative reform Mm -hmm.
1: Exactly, yeah. There are all these different denominations and permutations of Judaism and trying to find the answer that suits you and suits sort of maybe the religious practice that you're trying to look up, maybe the religious ideology that you're trying to look up. It's sometimes really hard to actually find what you're looking for. And this goes sort of in both directions. It's um, sometimes you find something that's, more stringent than you're looking for. Sometimes you find something that's much more lenient than you're looking for, and it just doesn't work. And there's no real way, as you were saying, to tell Google, thank you very much. This was a, um, this is from a reconstructionist perspective, and I'm looking for a conservative perspective, or I'm looking for an orthodox perspective. And having said all of that, I wonder, do you think that this is, is this particularly different than your normal experience of Google? No. <laughs>
3: Uh, It can be because Google tends to filter out a lot of results that we don't care to see and filter us into certain ideas, and I've definitely seen some of that. Um, But I don't think that my hunch is that this is not a deep enough and big enough thing that Google's filtering for what type of Jew you want to be in that moment.
1: Yeah, we are are very niche in some ways, and Google does the more data that you feed google the easier job they have of trying to answer a question and there might just not be enough of us to be able to ant- for google to gather enough data to know who's looking for what when
0: well i was going to say it also depends on who wrote the website and what they put in the meta tags
1: yeah that google's ability to find it is not necessarily because it understands question, and I realize I'm speaking about Google as if it's an entity as opposed to a corporation (laughs) run on a bunch of servers, Um, but because because it knows certain, like you were saying, tags, certain things are in the metadata, it finds certain words, sometimes it finds your question embedded in the page, but not in a way that's convenient or useful to us. So yeah, I think it's in some ways important to keep in mind both sides, that sometimes Google's Just doesn't feel as effective as we want it to be. Like the fantasy of a machine that is able to answer all of our questions is great, but not necessarily real. And at the same time, because of how small we are as a people, um, we don't always have the space to kind of get the nuance that we're looking for when we start having these conversations. So, sort of, once we're kind of working in this framework, and once we're working with these ideas of okay, so what are we what are we doing? How are we doing it? The question of what's Google's role is one that seems pretty fraught to me, both in terms of um, if Google can answer a question, why do I need rabbis? Um, and I say this given my train, given that I'm a year and change from graduating my my school. And also the other side of how exactly have we solved these problems in the past? Because one of the things that I learned, especially while doing my graduate work, is that the specifics of our problems change. Um, The problems themselves have not necessarily changed over time. The question of how do I find the information I need? How do I know that I'm being told the right thing? How do I trust? what to do and who's talking to me has kind of always been an incredibly complex and fraught question that we've always been asking ourselves. How do I know what I'm supposed to be doing as a Jew? How do I know what the law is in this situation? What should I know and what matters? So um, for me, because of, because of my own background and current space, one of the things that I really wanna think about is is it possible for Google to replace rabbis? What would, what would a search engine that you enter a Jewish question and then you get an answer look like? Is that, is that a good idea or a bad idea? Well, OK, quick show of hands. Who thinks it's a great idea? <laughs> I'm shocked, shocked to discover that we don't trust a search engine with, our, with the most fraught questions well, I of our existence.
0: I, I'm not to agree with that, but to, to put one statement in favor I think we're in an era when we're more and more skeptical of authority mm-hmm. and of personal bias. Yeah, The idea of getting objective data on what Jewish sources say rather than someone's own leanings as to what we should do is, is something I find appealing. So
2: let's say you, if you go to a rabbi, not shop well, <laughs> <laughs> shop rabbi. <laughs> Never take anybody's answer. Um, but if you go to, web, and you say, what is the law concerning something in casualty, okay, and it can come back and give you every opinion from the second century on. That's not going to help you, because it's not giving you an answer, it's just giving you a bunch of data. That you're going to go, oh, okay, now that I've read 20 of them, what do I do? Go, meeny, uh, miny, moe, I'm taking that
3: one. I actually think that giving you an answer would be worse. Yeah. because <laughs> Because as soon as you say, this is the way to do it, you remove any ability to have the nuance that the entire Talmud is based on of, well, there's all these gray areas, and there's all these exceptions, and there's all these changes to the rule, and as soon as you sit there and have like basically a dictionary that says this is the law, you lose the ability to say this is the law most of the time, but in this case, it's a little different.
1: Yeah. So gathering the so in some ways, this feels like a search engine that is able to kind of take all the data, collect it together and give you a sense of it is really helpful if what we're actually trying to do is make decisions for ourselves. It's not helpful if what we want is an answer. It's helpful if what we want is to have sort of the knowledge that we need to answer the question. And sort of the way that you were saying it, that getting 20 answers isn't helpful, but having in some ways perhaps a machine that gives you 20 answers and notes 18 say it's fine, two really don't like it, well suddenly you have a new, you have a new perspective.
2: So if you go to the talent mm-hmm. that all be and you come back with a search engine that gives you the same thing, you're still going to be in the same situation. Is you're going to be reading other people's opinions.
1: Yeah.
3: Yeah, but you get to see all those
1: opinions. Well, you
2: see it on the web, too.
3: Yeah.
1: So that sort of kind of brings brings back the question from earlier. How have people been dealing with this, given that this isn't a new problem, um, given that all the way back to to Kohelet in Ecclesiastes. He complains that um, there is no end to the making of books. And if people sort of for 2,000 years have been complaining that there's too much to read and too much to know, it's nice to know that we're in good company. And also, it maybe gives us a starting point that the question we're asking might be, how do we cope with all of this information now? How do we make decisions now when there's so much to know? And the answer might be, well, how did we make decisions then? How did we? How have we been doing this for the past? Um, let's go with two thousand years, give or take. Um, okay. So, if you will look at your source sheets, this is the first page. This is the page that is pretending to be a page of Gemara, even though it isn't. Um, can I have someone volunteer? You may to read source number one. You may read in. Basically, whatever language you like, although if you try to translate it into French on the fly, I will be very impressed.
2: <laughs> and why do they record the opinion of a single person among the many, when the halakha may be according to the opinion of the many? What? So that if a court prefers the opinion of a single person, it may depend on him. when no court may set aside the decision of another court unless it is greater. Than- than it is in wisdom and in number. If it was greater than it in wisdom, but not in number, in number, but not in wisdom, it may not set aside its decision unless it is greater than it is in wisdom and in number. This sounds like the hearings.
1: (laughs) Yes, it does kind of sound like the hearings because the judicial system kind of hasn't changed in 2000 years. So the question that they're asking here is, um, why do we bother recording dissenting opinions? Why do we write the majority and then write the dissent? Why do we care if that's not what the law is going to be? Why does it matter that there was one guy who completely disagreed? Um, this is in a tractate in the Talmud called Eduyot, which is, or not in the Mishnah, um, which is a collection of sayings that begins with the arguments of sort of the two great houses Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel who are known for um, their opposition to one another. And the Gemara always tells us this is Beit Shammai's opinion and this is Beit Hillel's opinion and in all but I believe six cases we follow Beit Hillel. So what the Mishnah is asking here is if we don't ever listen to Beit Shammai why do we constantly hear what his opinion is if we're not going to follow him? And the answer they give is so that if the court prefers the opinion of a single person, it may depend on him. Because sometimes, things might change. Sometimes we may be in a situation where the majority of the court decided one way, but then 10, 15, 100 years later, maybe, the, maybe there's going to be a new court that's going to need to make a new decision. And, when they're, and instead of upending things, they can go back and find the dissent and say, oh, this opinion was always part of our um Part of our tradition, part of our law, we decided against it that time, but we' are going to decide it for it this time and then the rigmarole afterwards about the size of the court there's this idea that court ne- that you can't just willy nilly um, go against the decision of a, that a previous court has made. You need to be greater as they say there need to be at least as many people as were in the original court, and there need to be and they need to be at least as scholarly, so they don't they're really worried about the implications of this. Because the idea that an individual, or maybe if it's a small court, three individuals, have the power to just overthrow all of the decisions that have been made, that's really frightening to them. And I think that in some ways we kind of see this in the American court system, where you go from one judge up the appellate courts all the way up to the Supreme Court, where suddenly you have nine judges. This idea that. Maybe, maybe we appeal things, but we want more people involved. We want more conversations involved. The rabbis are sort of doing the same thing. They want to raise up the possibility that maybe ideas will change across time, but also they're very worried about it. Um, one of the reasons that they're worried about this is this very strong principle in um, Jewish law that we always follow the majority. Um, the Gemara brings it up a couple of times. The phrase in Hebrew, that they use is acharei rabim um, lechatot. We follow after the many, the many as opposed to the few. There are plenty of stories in the Talmud of cases where um, majority, majority rules. We explain this is why we follow these people. And when we don't follow the majority, there's almost always a very compelling reason. Um, so that's one way to figure out kind of how do we make decisions you follow the majority, unless there's a really good reason not to. Um, source number two, which is um, the first sort of commentary, one, is, offers another um, perspective on how, to, on how to make this decision. So can someone volunteer to read source two?
3: One who adopts the leniencies of Beit Shammai and of Beit Hillel is wicked. One who adopts the stringencies of Beit Shammai and of Beit Hillel about them is said, the fool walks in darkness, Ra- rather, either Beit Shammai for both or Beit Hillel for both.
1: Okay. So this is, we were just talking about Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel. And this is a perspective that says that kind of you don't get to, you don't get to pick and choose. You don't get to say, oh, Beit Hillel is really lenient about this. So I'm going to follow them for that. Beit Shammai is really lenient about this other thing, so I'm going to follow them for that. I'm going to wend a path that allows me to do as little as possible in every circumstance by cherry picking from Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel, which makes a lot of sense why the Gemara would say that's, that's a wicked course, um, that trying to find the easiest way possible, especially because um, many of these decisions don't exist just sort of in a vacuum. They come from principles and ideologies that Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel care about. So if you're being as lenient as possible in every circumstance, you're often attempting to adopt competing ideologies, trying to be at the same time um, incautious about something and incautious about another thing. So that's one possibility. What's interesting is that they afterwards say that if you adopt the stringencies of both perspectives, you're stupid. Um, the is not usually polite about it. <laughs> the phrase ksil, a fool. Um, because it's just as silly to be pointlessly stringent on yourself. Because again, these perspectives suggest a certain ideology, a certain way of seeing the world. And if you're being stringent about all of them, then you're not actually adopting any of those ideologies. Um, there is this story told about, um, the brisker Rav, who I think if you've heard of Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik, this is his, either fa- I think his father, um, back in Lithuania, where somebody asked him why he was so lenient on matters of, um, breaking, of breaking Shabbat, of violating Shabbat for a sick person. And the brisker Rav answered, I'm not lenient on Shabbat. I'm being extremely stringent on saving a life. So there's, there's a very clear ideology that's behind it, which also acknowledges that every chumra, every stringency, is also a kula, is also a leniency. That in order to be strict on yourself for one thing, you're often being lenient on something else. And those leniencies might not necessarily be as visible. So if you try to be strict on everything, you're also going to be lenient on everything. And the reverse is also true. Um, if you try to be lenient on everything, you will find yourself being, you, being strict on something else. What that is is sort of not necessarily clear in all cases, but at the same time, we have this idea that it's easy to figure this stuff out, and that's kind of where it leaves us with that the best thing to do, according to the Gemara, is pick a teacher, pick a position, pick an ideology, and stick with it. So... If you're gonna follow Beit Shammai, follow Beit Shammai when they're being strict and when they're being lenient. If you're gonna follow Beit Hillel, follow Beit Hillel when they're strict and when they're lenient. If you're going to, if you're going to follow um, modern orthodoxy or conservative Judaism or, or Haredi Judaism, okay, stick with it. But don't pull random parts of different ideas in order to try to construct your own sort of your own Judaism. So yeah.
3: Isn't that how innovation happens, though, and how things change and move forward? I mean, if people were super strict about this particular rule, you wouldn't have as diverse a field of Judaism as you do today. Mm-hmm. So at some point, there's a limit to that where, and I'm not going to say I'm the person because I'm not a rabbi, but where somebody who's, who's studied enough can start to blaze their own path with the proper thing. So I, that, I guess that's the only problem I have with that idea.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's a really good point that like, this feels very um, impossible to innovate on, very impossible to do something that wasn't done before. And that raises two problems. One is that the world is full of things that didn't exist yesterday, and 10 years from now, things will exist that we couldn't have imagined today. So how do we work with that? And the other side is that like, we should be able to exercise our own our own brains, and be able to make changes. Um, but the environment
0: around us changes,
1: mm-hmm.
2: and so, with, so there, there are technology, I mean, originally a lot of the Shabbat laws were done during no electricity, no running water, things were work that were work. Mm-hmm. Just living was work. So as you go forward, you can take the philosophy, you can take the essence of what was taught. But drawing that out to flipping the switch, or not flipping the switch, or finding a loophole that you have a timer that flips the switch for you. Right. You know, that's where I find getting back to the original, is Google is not real helpful. we showing you a timeline on how we got from here to there. Yeah. It gives you just basic snippets, but we, you, it's very difficult to see how we progress from one place to another. Yeah,
1: I think that's actually a really important point that halacha isn't just sort of a heap of ideas all thrown on top of each other. It's often a narrative that exists and goes in a certain direction. The term, even halacha itself, su- suggests sort of a path or the way. It's not something that's stagnant, but it's also not something that all exists at the same time. We're actually going somewhere. Um, Alex, I think in answer to your question, I think the choice of Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai as examples is part of what the Gemara is trying to communicate here, that they're schools rather than individuals, schools that are often known for their ideology. Um, elsewhere in the Talmud, sort of the rabbis debate, what exactly is the ideology of Beit Shammai or is the ideology of Beit hillel so, per- so it's possible to say that um, what they're doing here is suggesting not necessarily that you always do exactly what your rabbi says in every single circumstance, although as a future rabbi, I should say you should always do exactly what I say in every single circumstance, and yet, that when you find an ideology, when you find a way of living, a philosophy of Judaism, let that dictate your law. So that might be able to let you figure out, what do you do with electricity? How do you understand electricity? Because even though the questions themselves are relatively new, the idea of what do we prioritize, saving a life or the laws of Shabbat? That's a broader ideological approach that the students of the Brisker Rav can carry forward into contemporary hospital cases that that he might never have been able to dream of, but can certainly understand how his philosophy might influence that. So that might also be part of it, that it's not necessarily the laws themselves, but the larger systemic approaches that the rabbis are telling us here Um, understand what's driving you and stick to it. Okay, um, I think. I'm not going to fully read Source 3 inside, although if you, are, if you are looking for a kindred spirit and would like to find someone else who is very overwhelmed by how much has been written and how much there is to understand, um, Rav Yosef Karo here, the author of um, a book called The Shulchan Arach, which is the major compilation of Jewish law that was written, I think, about 500 years ago and has basically never been surpassed is probably a good person. He writes in his introduction to his own commentary on um, the book that he wrote before the Shulchan Aruch. The problem with prolific authors is they just write too much. Where he talks (laughs) about where the Shulchan Aruch is his distillation of all of the content in this previous book into something that is much easier to um, refer to quickly. It's supposed to be a shorter version. And while it technically is a shorter version, Um, it takes up, I want to say like 12 volumes on my shelf. So short is like, short is a relative term. But when when, when he takes up this problem, he says it as, all right, I decided I was going to try to figure out what people should do. And then I looked at all of the sources and I found that there were places where the great rabbis of the past didn't make a decision or five of them made decisions and they contradict one another and sort of, What's a poor 16th century rabbi trying to write a code of law to do? How do I make these decisions? So what he says in the end is he says he doesn't feel that he is great enough in either number or in wisdom to actually make a halacha on his own. He needs some kind of framework to decide. So what he actually does is he kind of combines position one in the Mishnah of um, majority. And position two of follow a rabbi. He picks three rabbis that he calls sort of the Shloshet Amudei Hora'ah, the three pillars of teaching or of, of Jewish law. And he says, I'm going to look at what they say. And when two of the three of them agree on something, then that's how I'm going to decide the law for my book. Unless there's some strong, compelling reason that, such as everyone, by everyone, he means everyone who he knows. All of the Jewish people who he's familiar with practice otherwise. So for him, those three rabbis are um, the Riff, Rabbi Isaac Alfasi, who wrote a commentary on the Talmud, Maimonides, and the Rush, who was a major rabbi who was notable in part for having lived in both Ashkenaz and Sfarad. So he actually crossed the boundaries of the two major Jewish groups of his day and was familiar with both of their, um, both of their practices, which made it much, which gave him a very strong background for deciding Jewish law. And that's basically the approach that Rav Yosef Karo says he'll take. And he mostly takes it. Um, there are exceptions. He notes them there. There are also sometimes exceptions where he just clearly doesn't follow them or decides that usually it's the Rambam, that Maimonides is more important than everyone else. But we don't always know because one of the things that we don't have access to is what his community was doing around him. Um, there is because, of course, the first thing that happens when somebody writes a book is that someone else writes a commentary on the book. The major commentary on, um, on his book, the Shulchan Arach, is by the Rama, who is an Ashkenazi rabbi, while Rav Yosef Karo was um, a Sephardi rabbi. So um, the Rama, Rav Moshe Isserlis, provides, in turn, a comment that um, explains what the law is for all the Ashkenazi communities. He then goes on and says, OK, that's nice. Here's how we do it in my country <laughs> pretty consistently. And for him, he actually comes from a tradition where what the people around you are doing is almost like a text itself. So, like. When he's trying to prove this is what's done, his proof is not necessarily, oh, this rabbi said it or or that rabbi said it. It's I looked around me and I was filled with a community that did this exact thing. So that's what we do. So that's where it comes from. Um, he also again draws on sources, but for him, it's really important um, for him to recognize that his communal practice is itself a really strong and important source of knowledge. we on time. Okay, so.
3: Was there not being was was the lack of a single unifying document or series of documents that was the law. Was that a, a fault or a feature of Judaism up to that point?
1: I mean, I'm pretty sure it's consistently um, both. That I don't I wouldn't necessarily say it's a fault. It does make things more complicated when people are moving from place to place. But I mentioned Rabbi Asher, the Rush who actually moved from, Svarad to Ashkenaz, from Ashkenaz to Svarad. Most people didn't. Most people actually didn't really leave their towns very often. So the fact that there was this diversity of practice mostly didn't impinge on people's lives, because who knew about it? Um, so on the one hand, there's that. On the other hand, I think um, I'm probably quoting my teacher in this. And I don't remember who he's quoting, but the idea that there's, after some kind of major catastrophe, there's usually a period of codification to try to sort of regroup and recollect everything that's known. So the Shulchan Arach was written, I think, about 50 to 60 years after the Jews were expelled from Spain and Portugal. So in part, I think that this is a response to the feeling that all of these traditions that used to exist and were safe in... Um, the towns where they were practiced no longer exist because the Jews are kicked out or the Jews were forcibly converted to Christianity or any of the other things that ruins the ordinary normal transition. So I also think that that's a big part of it, that sometimes we res- that the Jewish community responds to fear by sort of hunkering down and codifying and saying, this is the law, because otherwise we might lose it.
2: So well, that's where we start with kidney Because mm-hmm. that was a very made by local rabbis based on my take is they had no confidence in the people that were in the community. So they started making all these laws that said, no, this is what you have to do because we don't trust you not to take stuff and put it over here so you're not going to have rice because this and you're not going to do this and you're not going to do that. Meanwhile, part of them is, they're over there and they're going, we don't know from that and we're not going to do that because we don't know from that. And now you've got modern day where you've got computers and now you can look up anything you want and you've got blending of people saying but I'm not in the shtetl anymore. I'm not in Russia anymore. I'm living in Israel and everybody's eating rice.
1: Yeah. Right. What, what do you do when everyone's culture collides and we're no longer isolated and we know all of this information, which kind of, thank you, thank you for bringing us back to sort of the original question that this might have been something that we could that was easier to deal with when we were just more isolated and weren't constantly being given answers from every single shtetl in Poland. But once we know all of those rabbis that made all of those individual decisions, and also, I mean, think of the poor rabbis. It's one thing to tell a um, congregant something and know that it's just going to be the answer to their question and they're going to go home and maybe they'll tell it to their spouse or their kids and then that's it and that's what the family does and it doesn't go any further than that. It's a whole nother thing to know that every time you answer a question for a congregant, the congregant's going to post your answer on Facebook and your entire community is going to debate it and then somebody's going to take a screenshot of that and post, and post it on some other social media and all of a sudden everything, everything that you said is available for the entire world to pick apart. And an answer that might have been um, correct for your community, but not actually the right answer for somebody else's community, is suddenly all over the place because that's how that's the world we live in. That's sort of because we have all this kind of access, because we have all this information. It's also kind of really fraught. Um, source four is actually from um, an article about a an answer that was given to a couple of students that went viral. Um, this was by somebody who actually really didn't like that answer. Um, and Rev. Herschel Schachter basically says, look, having Google at your fingertips, having um, the responsive project, being able to just do a word search through thousands of years of Jewish history doesn't make you a rabbi and doesn't give you the authority to decide on the right thing to do. In some ways, he's coming down sort of on the very, um, on the very narrow definition of what we read in uh, an a ravine that you pass in by Beit Shammai or Beit hillo. You pick a rabbi and you follow him or her, hopefully. Um, <laughs> but at the end of the day, you, just having the data at your fingertips doesn't give you the right, and he's pretty clear that we're talking about the right, to make the decision for yourself what you should do. Um, Source 5 deals with something similar that when you have a ton of sources at your fingertips, it's really easy to cherry pick. It's easy to decide, oh, I'm going to put together an entire source sheet that makes it look like this is what things are like all the time. And I mean, I, as much as I want, I picked certain sources here and I don't think that I was cherry picking, there were sources that I didn't put on this source sheet. Um, one of them is actually explicitly a rejection of Rabbi Schachter's approach that says, um, It's a Gemara in Chagiga that talks about the experience of learning Torah. And these people over here are saying this is forbidden. And these people over here are saying that this is permitted. These people are saying it's pure. These people are saying it's impure. How am I supposed to learn anything? And it's imagining the student who comes in and yells this. And the answer that the Gemara gives is turn your ear into a funnel and acquire for yourself a knowing heart. So basically, listen to everybody, collect as much you can, and then make good decisions. Which, in some ways, is sort of what, what we wish, I think, or let me speak for myself, what I wish that a search engine could do. The idea of something that would help you collect as much information as possible so that you know that you have the resources and data that you need to make good decisions, but also something that, to some degree, trusts us to make those decisions. Um, because this is sort of... I talk about Judaism. And because there's no such thing as an answer, there's always about 15 answers. I actually think that both of these approaches are really valid. The approach of sort of collect the data, look for the majority, understand how things work is one good approach, especially for sort of broader categories, but especially for individual questions. Sometimes it's really helpful to be able to go to a rabbi because Google can tell you, here are the 20 opinions, and they range through here. A rabbi can tell you, okay, but there's one of these opinions that's really about your specific case. And I think this opinion will be the most helpful for you. Um, There's this idea in um, teaching kids online literacy where um, teachers are trying to do, in some ways, what we're doing, what we're talking about here. How how can you trust the things that you find? How do you know it? Um, And a lot of these programs are trying to give kids heuristics for like, okay. Has the website updated recently? Does it cite its sources? But the problem is the really best way to know when something is true on the internet is to spend a lot of time learning a lot of things. The more you know as a person, the more knowledge you have in your mind, the better you're able to evaluate, does this fit with what I know overall? Does this make sense with the broader world as I understand it. And if it doesn't, you do more research. And you see sometimes you see, oh, this is a special circumstance that I hadn't known about before, and now I know. But sometimes it's, oh no, this is just wrong. Um, It would be nice if there were shortcuts, but I sometimes wonder whether that same issue comes up here, that what we're looking for is, on the one hand, everyone to have a broad knowledge base, but sometimes when we have questions that kind of stretch beyond our collective knowledge base, in the same way that it's really helpful to go to an expert when it comes to like, medical decisions, as opposed to just, I googled my symptoms, and it turns out that I have every disease ever, which is apparently a phase that medical students go through, of like, I learned about this last week, and now I think I have this rare disease that nobody in this country has ever had. Okay. So I feel like sometimes we can fall into that trap, too, of what, what is this? idea? What is this idea in Judaism? Where was it used? Where does it come from? How do people talk about it? Which I don't necessarily think is limited to rabbis to have that authority, but I do think that it suggests that part of what our task is when we're thinking about sort of how do we understand things is our job isn't really to collect as much as possible anymore. Google's really good at that. Our job is to think about what we want to know, and then when we've decided what we want to know, when we've decided, where our knowledge focus should be to actually kind of take the time and learn that and then maybe be able to make the decisions for ourselves. So because I'm the kind of person that I am, I will sort of always fall on the side of the source that I didn't put on the page, the source that says turn your ear into a funnel and get yourself a wise heart because I love the, I love the puzzle of it, but also, um, I think it's going to be a really, really long time before Google is able to replace more than the funnel. Right now, Google's doing a really good job being the funnel that brings everything to our door. But right now, I think we, everyone in this room, everyone listening, everyone who spends time dealing with Judaism, we're still the ones who have to be the wise heart. And I think that's our job. All right, questions?
2: Um. Because we are nuanced. Everything we do as a people, everything we think, is very
3: nuanced. Good you thing, need a search engine that takes <laughs> it
2: in the nuance. Good thing one of the Google founders is Jewish. Yeah, and <laughs> <Jugo>. <laughs> so is Zuckerberg. Where is that going?
0: So I think with AI, we're going to see the development of online rabbis. And see that nuance at some point and the question is,
3: I don't think Google's going to develop it. It will probably come from Chabad and the other larger organizations yeah. with their different uh, perspectives. I don't think AI is very good at nuance. That's like its big fault. is There's no nuance and you don't know why it's making the decisions it's making.
0: if machine learning develops I think it will
3: ramp up. Yeah, but I mean all machine learning is just throwing a bunch of data at something and telling it to give the answer that has been given the most often, based on the circumstances. So
0: you don't think we're ever going to get there?
3: Do I don't think that the idea that you will have machines thinking of nuances the way that humans think of, I think that that is way further off than any of us are really, really getting to. And while it might seem that that's happening, and we might, it might, it's still always going to be a black box to us. We're not going to understand what's going on behind the curtain for why they're making a the decision. I mean, the, one of the biggest issues right now with autonomous driving is that a lot of people are trying to under they're trying to build these securities in so you can explain why a crash happened, right. why, why the AI made a decision. That's fundamentally not how AI works. AI makes a decision based on the data that it has. That's the answer every time. There's no, oh, I saw something over there and I thought it was this different thing and that changed it for me. It's just, right. this was the that's picture the I was given, and, and this is how I... And so, yeah. I, you know, while, yeah, you can, you can get what appears to be a lot of nuance out of there, and you can get some really rich results, just, it's, I don't think that as humans dealing with spiritual issues, we're ever going to be happy with something that can't explain its reasoning. We're always happy with the answer That's well, true, then, too. It's <laughs> <That's> fun <fine laughs> to be human. Yeah, we have the nuance in the philosophy, but we also have the nuance in
2: the language. So you have all of these blue words, mm-hmm. and they mean, and the words that came out of them mean something so totally different. Yeah. And then, you, like, as I said, I read commentary. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I read Torah, I've got like five books in front on the table, and I'm reading all the commentary. And they're arguing from book to book on what this one word means. Because their understanding of when, when they saw when they started to translate, is different. So yeah. again, we have we have another layer of nuance that I just don't ever think that a computer is ever going to be able to think in that way. Because we have we put five thousand years worth of history behind us when we're thinking about these things. Right. I don't think you're going to be able to build that into
3: a computer. Yeah. I think that's the easiest part to build in. Because <laughs> that's a that. data problem. No, data problems problem. we're good at. You yeah, throw but, enough... To, you not throw the nuance, enough,
2: for, the not the nuance no. for
3: understanding, and I think that's where humans come in. And I think that what we're seeing a lot is... Um, for example, I don't, I don't think we realize how many autonomous vehicles are on the road right now. Because does your car have a blinker that tells you if someone's in your blind spot? Or maybe it doesn't, but like a lot of cars do. Those are the kind of things that are like parts of autonomy. So while full like rabbi autonomy doesn't make sense, still, you know, creating ways for people to see more sources or be able to have more things at their fingertips, like every possible definition of a, of a root word. Right. I mean, that's there. Yeah.
1: I think we're also starting to see... But it's the,
2: it's the, it's the, what I'm mm-hmm. saying is, is it's the nuance of the word that...
3: Right, the interpretation. Yeah. You, you, how, what we you do with that data is, is different. But yeah. collecting that data and seeing that data and presenting it is there. Yeah. yeah.
2: And well, I, I think
1: data. we're doing that. Well, data yes. Is
2: just
1: data is everywhere. But also, yeah. I think that, I mean, most. I certainly didn't say that this talk was by Liz Shane and Safaria, but like, it certainly was. I definitely pulled, like, that was where I went for my sources, um, especially when I couldn't remember where in A. Ravine um, the Gemara I quoted was. So I had to go and like search through it to try to remember the words that were in it.
2: Well, that's the nice thing about Safaria. Yeah. Is when you put something in, you'll get every single thing that they have for that.
1: Right. And I think it's letting I, us I've ask new questions.
2: Half like you did.
1: Yeah. That's really, really difficult to do. <laughs> yeah. Right. Because when you remember half of a saying or
2: half of something, and you can't
1: remember the rest. Mm-hmm. It's really frustrating. <laughs> and I mean, maybe I should start putting Safari on as my co-author. But at the same time, I think the ability to sort of to look at the nuances that you're talking about, so to sort of look at the use of every single word. Well, for one thing, it's getting a lot harder to miss them. And at the same time, you can start to formulate new ideas. It might be possible that now that we see all those words put together, we can see something new. I think that there's a lot of academic research in this area that just thinks about, OK, we, we haven't been able to compare this to all these other root words and other like, languages from the same era. But now that we can, we can see something new about what it means in this context, but not in this context. So having having the data actually be accessible is a big deal. Being able to put it together in an interesting fashion, to be able to find it when we need it, is also a big deal. Um, There's the downside, of course, which is that if you're searching for information instead of paging through a book, you miss all of the interesting things on the page before and the page afterwards. So it's it's hard to make sure that you catch everything, um, which is sort of the nice thing about sort of the book instead of something that looks like a source sheet. Source sheets organize things thematically. Um, Books organize things sort of around a specific commentary, around um, this particular page, these particular words. They're both useful ways of thinking about things, but sometimes it used to be, I think, when it was just pages of books, that you wouldn't necessarily know that this topic gets treated three more times in the Talmud unless you looked for it. On the other hand, if all you see is the three times it's cheated in the Talmud, you don't necessarily see how it operates differently in context, because the rabbis bring it up different times to do different things. So both of those things end up being important. But like at the end of the day, I th- Alex, I think you're right. I think it's going to be a really long time until um, we have a robot that can't just give 100 answers, but can give the right answer to the questioner. Um, there's a saying that I heard again from my rabbis that um, there's never that you're never answering a question a, sh- a shayla, you're answering a sholal a person a person asking you that question and their life history and their needs and their and like where they are right now so it's not always sort of um, all of these approaches even if it's sort of follow your rabbis or follow your rabbis ideology or follow the majority sometimes it's Talk to the person, find out what they need in the moment, and right now, that's not something that, that's not something that robots can do. Like robots can tell you what the answer normally is, and a rabbi can tell you why the why it's not the answer right now in your case for this reason. And I, in some ways, we need both of those. That's, mm-hmm.
2: I mean, there, if you're looking for a quote, yeah, there's an answer. <laughs> data, it's, it's it's there somewhere. There's all these points of view and but different if, Yeah, but if you're looking for the philosophy. You're not going to get that out of, you know, that's like
3: giving a monkey a typewriter. <laughs>
1: well, I don't know, give it long, give it 3,000 years, maybe we'll, have, maybe we'll have the entire Talmud recreated by Google.
3: There's some really funny results where people ask artificial intelligence to like write a sketch for them or something like that, and <laughs> it, it always ends up kind of just barely not making any sense. Yeah, <laughs> it tries
1: so hard.
2: Well, they, they, and they compared it to the bed Experimenting did in the fifties with the monkeys and the typewriters, yeah. And they did. It's it's basically the same thing, right? It sort
1: of comes out. The computer's a little better. Yeah. It's nice to be in good company, though, to sort of look around and say, like, oh, we've been struggling with this for a long time, and we're probably going to continue struggling with it. And also, I mean, one of the things I found while doing this is things aren't as different as they seem. That there's no looming robot. Apocalypse where my job is going to be taken over by a maha robot or something. That <laughs> that all of the all of the human all of the humanness that is sort of what imbues Judaism with community is still gonna be here. Um, yeah. But
2: we do need the data. And there's one group within Judaism which isn't participating. Conservatives don't. They just, it's not there. Go look. Yeah. Yeah. Go look on the web for their stuff. It's behind passwords. Yeah. You have to be a congregation. You have to be a member congregation and be a member of a member congregation to get a password, to to get a question answered on what they believe.
1: Which makes it really hard when we're really used to sort of all of this open access of information. Yeah, so, you can go
2: to yeah. The, you can go to the reform, you can go to almost every single thing, except for them. And then they wonder why they're doing, they're dwindling
0: away. The Maybe not a good approach to outreach. <laughs> uh. <laughs> thank you, well we want to thank Dr. Thank uh for this uh, interesting talk, and, yep. uh, and welcome you again at 7 o'clock if you're free again tonight.
1: Yeah. If you want to hear more about robots and Judaism, come back at 7. We'll talk about converting one. (laughs)
0: Thanks for joining us. And thanks for this
1: talk. Thanks so much.
0: Thank you. Hi, this is Shmuley Yanklewitz. I hope you enjoyed listening to this fascinating lecture.